0: Hey, so welcome everyone to the London Aesthetics Forum. Today's session is co-sponsored by the British Society of Aesthetics and Teethock College. And we're delighted to have with us here today Noel Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at City University of New York's Graduate Centre. Professor Carroll is of course widely known as one of the most preeminent scholars in contemporary philosophy of art and aesthetics, and is well known for his work on the philosophy of film, music, dance, literature, horror, as well as moral, social and uh, emotional aspects of art. Today is going to talk to us about comic amusement, emotion, and cognition. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Um, and it's a wonderful turnout. Uh, let me begin. An Irishman named Pat walks into a bar in New York and orders three shots of Jameson. He drinks them down and orders three more shots, and so on. Finally, the bartender asks Pat why he always orders his drinks in sets of three. Pat tells him that he likes to make believe he is drinking with his two brothers who are far away. Presently, Pat says his older brother is in Dublin and the younger one is in Sydney. But in no time, Pat becomes a regular at the bar, and every day as soon as he enters, the bartender lines up three shots. But on one day, as Pat bellies up to the bar, he says, Only two shots today. I'm sorry for your loss, says the bartender. What loss? Well, you're only ordering two shots, Has one of your brother's passed? Nah, don't you know it's me, I'm on the wagon. (laughs) For those of you who found this joke funny, let us call the state in which you found yourself comic amusement, where the object of comic amusement is humor. In the talk today, I'd like to defend the thesis that comic amusement is an emotional state while also illuminating the relevance of cognition to the mobilization of that state. On some conceptions of comic amusement, the question of whether or not it is an emotional state is a no-brainer. The theory I have in mind is perhaps the most ancient. It's often called the superiority theory. Forerunners of the view can be found in Plato and Aristotle. In his Philebus, Plato identifies comic amusement as a form of malice that we direct at those who fail, as Socrates might have it, to know themselves. That is, those who think they are smarter, stronger, more agile, better looking, and so on than they actually are. Aristotle repeats the theme of malice in his Poetics, where he suggests that comedy began as invective, perhaps as Greek versions of the African-American rituals of insult known as the toast, the dozens, and your mama. As in, your mama is so fat, she's got two zip codes. Of of course, the best-known version of the superiority theory belongs to Hobbes, who identifies comic amusement as sudden glory, which is the passion which makes all those grimaces called laughter and is caused either by some sudden act of their own that pleases them or by the apprehension of some deformed thing in another by comparison whereof they suddenly implored themselves. Here, comic amusement (coughs) is readily identifiable as a specific emotion, namely contempt. On this theory, with respect to the preceding joke, we laugh at Pat because he's either incredibly stupid or stupendously self-deceived. However, for reasons to be addressed shortly, the superiority theory is problematic. A more promising view is what's called the incongruity theory. On this view, comic amusement is the enjoyment of absurdity. We laugh at people uh, like the uh, scholars at the University of Chicago when they yearly have their Lotke versus Hohmentaschen debate that is a debate whether uh, potato pancakes are better than dessert tarts, because of the sheer incongruity of the prospect of people like Martha Nussbaum treating this topic with the seriousness they bring to their research. Likewise, when we laugh at Pat in the preceding joke, it is the contradiction that tickles our fancy, according to the incongruity theorist. We need not look down at Pat. Indeed, some of us may even hold there's some low cunning in his behavior. However, whereas it is clear comic amusement is an emotional state on a superiority theory, it's less certain it belongs to that category on the incongruity theory. My aim is to show comic amusement is an emotional state even on the incongruity view. So to do that, first I have to spell out a version of the incongruity theory, uh, and then I'll go on to defend the view that it's an emotional state. So first, the incongruity theory. Uh, This theory of comic amusement arose as an explicit reaction to the superiority theory of Hobbes. Specifically, it was Francis Hutchinson's response, uh, as later refined by James Beatty, to Hobbes' account of sudden glory. Hutchinson and uh, Beatty pointed out that the feeling of superiority could hardly be a sufficient condition for the relevant sort of amusement, since despite our superiority to them, we never laugh at oysters. Nor is superiority a necessary condition for comic amusement. We may be pleasantly amused by the sight of uncommon glaring juxtapositions in everyday life, as when we observe a Morris Minor parked next to a stretch hummer but there is no one here available for us to lord it over. Also, we may be made merry by word wit, parlayed by the likes of an Oscar Wilde, but we recognize that folks like him are far more clever than we are. Also, we often laugh at ourselves when we find ourselves in the very process of doing something foolish, like, for example, brushing your teeth with shaving cream. Indeed, inasmuch as Hobbes' theory is framed in terms of laughter, it's predictably too broad to provide a serviceable theory of comic amusement, since laughter accompanies many occasions that are anything but comic. A gladiator with his foot upon the neck of his defeated rival laughs in triumph, but not because the situation is funny. Triumphant laughter is different than the sort associated with comic amusement. Hobbes' mistake was to assimilate the two. A theory of laughter, if there could be such a thing, can't afford a theory of comic amusement. For in addition to triumphant laughter, there is also the laughter that arises from tickling, from various drugs like nitrous oxide, marijuana, from a sense of well-being or joy, from nervousness, from recognition, from lovemaking. Uncontrollable laughter can be an affliction, as in the case of hyperphrenia, In fact, recent scientific research has established that most of the laughter in ordinary discourse functions as conversational glue. We laugh just as we nod our heads in order to let our interlocutors know that we are listening to them and following them. The topic discussed need not be witty to confirm this. Just listen to any radio talk show where there are always confirming bursts of laughter uh, from the uh, the interviewer and uh, from the uh, interviewee 's response to the interviewer. In short, the object of laughter the objects of laughter are various, and most of them aren 't humorous. The laughter we care about is directed at humor, but what is? the object of comic amusement. In response to Hobbes, um, Hutchinson and Beatty identified it as incongruity, or perhaps better perceived incongruity. Maybe the germ of this proposal was already present in the classical superiority theories, theories uh, which thought that the proper objects of comedy were people who were worse than average, and therefore perforce deviations from the norm. However, this suggestion is too narrow, since, as I've mentioned, uh, with cases like Oscar Wilde, comedy can issue from excellence. What's key to comic amusement is a deviation from some presupposed norm, that is to say, an anomaly or an incongruity, relative to some framework governing the ways in which we think the world is or should be. Sometimes this idea is stated in terms of a subversion of expectations. Yet this can be misleading, for often we're comically amused by outcomes we anticipate with mounting mirth. Think of uh, a slapstick comedy, uh, when the policeman in such a comedy, distracted by a passing beautiful woman and not looking in front of him, walks into an open manhole. Furthermore, when listening to a joke, we generally do not have any inkling, that is, any specific expectations about where it's headed. When the punchline is delivered, it's not as though it displaces some other specific thought we had in mind. We're surprised that the joke is effective, although, as we've seen from the previous example of the slapstick policeman, our surprises is necessary for comic amusement. If we want to employ the language of expectation with respect to comic amusement, then we shouldn't be thinking of of specific expectations like what exactly will Pat in the opening joke respond to the bartender. Rather, we should be thinking of our global expectations about how the world is or should be. Comic amusement emerges against the background of presumed congruities or norms. Moreover, because we assume so many congruities or norms in order to navigate our way through the world, there are an indeterminately large number of things that are potentially perceivable as incongruous. Schopenhauer, for example, thought that the object of comic amusement was something like a category mistake or an absurdity, as in the case of Pat, the Irishman, who understands the concept of being on the wagon to be compatible with downing two drinks for his brother so long as he refrains from tossing one back for himself. Likewise, the the incongruity is a logical error when the rotund customer in the pizzeria, who when asked whether he wants his pie sliced into eight pieces or four, says... Four, I'm on a diet. Because they deviate from and disrupt norms, violations of logic, deductive, inductive, formal and informal are incongruities and therefore staples of comedy. But of course we abide by many norms other than those of logic and consequently the ambit of humor is much broader than Schopenhauer's very elegant theory suggests. Comic amusement can erupt wherever sense is problematized, wherever our sense of how the world is or should be is disturbed. We operate with norms of morality, prudence, and etiquette. Hence, it's unsurprising that much humor involves immorality, reckless and extravagant behavior, and gaucherie. In addition to logical, moral, and prudential norms, there are conventional norms, including not only codes of politeness, but the laws of language, Violations of the latter provide the source of a great deal of humor. Groucho Marx's puns frequently derail in a single blow the rules of semantics and grammar as well as the maxims of conversation. And speaking even more broadly, norms of appropriateness govern almost every aspect of our lives, opening up thereby the possibility of humor with respect to sexual behavior, cleanliness, attire, and much else. We presuppose norms regarding human intelligence and physical condition. Hence, it's no accident that so many clowns are inhumanly stupid and exceedingly fat or skinny. These features and more can function as topics for comic amusement inasmuch as they afford opportunities for incongruity. But perhaps it is the very fact that incongruity covers such an indefinitely large territory that may pose a problem. It's a very baggy concept, maybe too loose to perform the work theorists intend for it. In the 19th century, Alexander Bain argued that incongruity couldn't supply a a sufficient condition for comic amusement, since there are many incongruities that engender other sorts of feelings. Maybe most patently, instead of levity, incongruities are just as likely, or even more, to stir up fear and anxiety. Bela Lugosi, done up in his Dracula outfit, may cheer us in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but in other contexts, he's more apt to engender horror. Or if you think Bela Lugosi is always always funny, think of Christopher Lee. Similarly, psychologists have observed that when a familiar caregiver puts on a funny face, a child is likely to be amused and even giggle. Whereas when a stranger does the same thing, the child becomes anxious and may wail. So even if incongruity were a necessary condition for comic amusement, it's not sufficient. One factor that needs to be added as a qualification in order to approach adequacy is the recognition that for comic amusement to take off, it must occur in a context from which fear for ourselves and those we care about, including fictional characters, has been banished. Comic incongruities, in other words, must be non-threatening, or at least what is potentially threatening, frightening, or anxiety-producing about them must be deflected or marginalized. When someone is killed in a joke or uh, in a humorous uh, uh, situation, as so many uh, lawyers are, uh, slipped there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, think, think, think of the, the the moment when when the lawyer in the outhouse is stomped to death by the Tyrannosaurus Rex in uh, Jurassic Park. Um, we, uh, when that happens, we're not we're not uh, treated to gruesome details of their demise. As Aristotle notes, comedy should not involve pain and destruction, or perhaps more accurately. It shouldn't draw focused attention upon it. The suffering needs to be kept off stage. Also, the victim in jokes and the like are typically people we don't care about and maybe even are people we're encouraged to dislike and maybe even to imagine to be deserving of whatever they get. Think of lawyers again. Of course, those whom we care about can come in for pummeling. Uh, in slapstick uh, think of figures like the Three Stooges but it's significant that these figures are usually clowns that is beings who are not quite human beings who can take a hit on the head with a sledgehammer and who then after a brief swoon are back in the game almost immediately they are not in short in real danger they are not ontologically like us so we do not feel anxiety in their behalf Henri Bergson referred to this tolerance for comic brutality by means of the memorable phrase the momentary anesthesis of the heart but I don't think that this should be understood to mean comic amusement is alien to emotion altogether but rather only to certain emotions such as sympathy these are disengaged moreover by distracting our attention away from that which might enlist our sympathies for the characters in question by deemphasizing the apparent degree of danger and pain that threaten them, or by portraying them as antipathetic, or by portraying them as other than normal humans—clown-like, moronic, and not subject to the injuries to which flesh is heir—often the anesthesis of sympathy can be secured by features internal to a joke or fiction, as in the case of the clown or through the mobilization of stereotypical characters we love to hate. Yes, think of lawyers again. Likewise, uh, a fantastical setup can cue humor. Uh, For example, a cartoon that's set in hell involving talking insects. Other internal factors that neutralize our sympathies here involve the way in which anything that might cause anxiety is marginalized, either by not being mentioned at all or by rushing past them and not dwelling on features like the pain and suffering that might provoke anxiety. That's partly what's meant by comic timing, knowing what to rush through and what not to rush through in order to manipulate the audience's attention. External factors also play a role in inducing this anesthesis of the heart. When framed with the introduction, did you hear the one about X? Or when a change in the intonation of the speaker's voice shifts key, or when someone winks, you're alerted to the proposition that now is the time to adopt what's called comic distance. That is, the characters are about to be beaten blown apart and defenestrated, but we shouldn't worry about them. In other words, these framing devices tell us that the imaginary beings and jokes and other <coughs> common forms are not quite like us, and therefore what happens to them should not be uh, a matter of our concern. Now, there is one, at least one, counterexample example to my uh, conjecture uh, that I I might mention, and that is uh, the genre of black humor, such as uh, dead baby jokes. I don't know if you have dead baby jokes in Britain. What's brown and gurgles, a a baby casserole. Um, Or in Monty Python, the man who keeps hitting himself on the head with a, a brick. Those would be examples of what I mean by black humor. Uh, Things like dead baby jokes involve incongruity, if anything does, reveling as they do in the torture and or deaths of infants. Who can deny that the massacre of innocence is inappropriate? But these jokes amuse many. Uh, I think there are at least two factors at play in black humor. First, black humor jokes, like all jokes, are framed as jokes, thereby inviting comic distance. But second, and I think more importantly... Things like dead baby jokes are not really uh, uh, about the dead babies. That is, the dead babies are not the butt of these jokes. The butt of dead baby jokes and of black humor in general are those sanctimonious people we imagine will be outraged by the joke. Those are people we are disposed to regard antipathetically already. Our merriment is grounded in recognizing how these dead baby riddles will fluster them. In general, verbal jokes are on a continuum with practical jokes. There's an element of trickery in all jokes. The jokester, that is, tricks the listener of the joke into finding the absurd conclusion of the joke to be somehow fitting, or at least intelligible when it's not. With respect to black humor, a trick is also being played on the uptight audience whom we imagine will be apoplectically indignant upon hearing such a joke. As André Breton, the discoverer of black humor, notes, black humor is the mortal enemy of sentimentality. That is, black black humor is a satire of conventional pieties. It is another way of outraging the bourgeoisie. Or as a friend of mine likes to say, it's a way of driving your mother insane. Of course, another way in which the incongruities that spark comic amusement differ from the anxiety-producing sort is that we enjoy them. We don't fret about them, they give us pleasure. Nevertheless, acknowledging this is not enough to feign off Alexander Bain's objection. To say uh, comic incongruities are non-threatening is insufficient because there are non-threatening, enjoyable incongruities that are not comic. Here I'm thinking especially in terms of the pleasure one derives from grappling with puzzles and anomalies, whether theoretical, empirical, or practical. Now, it may appear strange to attempt to distinguish sharply between the pleasures experienced when confronting puzzles and problems on the one hand, and comic amusement that results from humor, since a large portion of comic amusement is inspired by jokes, whether of the riddle variety or the narrative kind and jokes involve puzzles otherwise known as punchlines whose anomalousness gives birth to interpretations that are ostensibly designed to dispel their incongruity for example the lone survivor of an airplane crash is ruined on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean after many years his rescued by a passing ocean liner. The doctor is exa- While the doctor is examining him, he says, you're in great health, but tell me one thing. Why are there two synagogues on the island? The survivor answers, the one on the north side of the island is my synagogue the other one I wouldn't step into (laughs) here here the punchline explains why there are two synagogues on the island with one inhabitant but it does so at the cost of compounding the absurdity rather than resolving it for the joke invites us to imagine against anything that the principle of charity would recommend a man so improbable that he would build a structure for the sole purpose of not entering it In this joke, an answer is supplied to the puzzle, yet the answer itself is an absurdity or an incongruity that nevertheless pleases us. In contrast, when we're engaged in genuine puzzle solving, our pleasure revolves around finding or trying to find an actual answer to our question, one that accords with how the world is or should be. We're looking for congruity. On the other hand, with respect to jokes, one puzzle or incongruity gives way to another, and we leave it at that. The result of a joke is a derangement of sense. When we engage in authentic puzzle solving from crossword puzzles to mathematical theorems, we aim at finding the right answers and take pleasure in that. Whereas with jokes, we're happy with the wrong answers, indeed, outrageously wrong answers. So, provisionally, gathering these observations together, let me say that someone's comically amused only if, one, the object of her mental state is a perceived incongruity, two, which she regards as neither seriously threatening to herself nor anyone she cares about, nor does she regard it as otherwise anxiety-producing, three, which she does not approach with a genuine puzzle-solving attitude, but four, which she enjoys. Humor, then, uh, the perceived incongruity is the response-dependent property that affords comic amusement. Now, this sort of theory, of course, has been advanced and been challenged. So before I turn to the discussion of comic amusement as an emotion, uh, let let me just briefly address a, a couple of the most recurring kinds of objections. The first is that perceived incongruity is not a necessary Condition for comic amusement. Um, this is from Rogers' group. Consider the case of caricature. A caricature is supposed to bring about some insight about the person caricatured. Caricatures of Richard Nixon's exaggerated five o'clock shadow was supposed to underscore his his thuggishness. Suppose that such character caricatures do reveal something true about their subjects. That is, something corresponding to the way things are. Then, like Scruton, you might be tempted to say, we take pleasure here in congruities rather than incongruities. Uh, I'm very suspicious of, of this counterexample and, and the others that he has that are of this ilk, uh, because I think ultimately they rely on pa- playing fast and loose with the notions of incongruity and congruity. Um, I think there's an equivocation, it goes like this in the case of caricature, the alleged congruity is something like truth with respect to the subject's character yet this sort of congruity, if that's what you want to call it is perfectly compatible with the sort of incongruity that's relevant, in fact, definitory, of visual caricature specifically a, a deviation uh, in the appearance of the subject most often in terms of exaggeration, in terms of things like uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson's overly large ears or George Bush's large ears or Barack Obama's large ears. <laughs> ears seem to be something caricatures focus on. But one doubts that there would be comic amusement without these perceived incongruities. That if it is, if it was congruity that was important, since realistic revealing self-portraits like those of Rembrandt don't evoke comic amusement. Why not? Well, there's nothing visually incongruous about them. Also, uh, those photographs of Winston Churchill during World War II as this kind of mountain of determination uh, reveal something about Churchill, but they're not funny. Uh, they're They're not humorous. And again, I think the reason is pretty clear. There's nothing visually incongruous about them. Uh, another set of counterexamples is intended to show that incongruity isn't sufficient for comic amusement. Uh, both charged incongruity theories don't differentiate comic amusement from the kinds of pleasure we take from engaging in artworks. Um, one kind of pleasure you take from watching and thinking about Orson Welles' Citizen Kane rests on trying to interpret the central contradiction in the story. Is a human life like Kane's unfathomable, or can it be explained by clues as pregnant as Rosebud? Isn't the large measure of the pleasure we derive from Cain a function of the hermeneutic play in which we immerse ourselves? But even if we call this amusement, it's not comic amusement, so the incongruity, so the argument goes, theory of comic amusement is too broad. Another kind of example of surrealist images, such as Dali's Melting timepieces. They intrigue us by means of incongruity, but they don't prompt comic amusement. Uh, They're far too ominous. So once again, the theory seems to be not tight enough. Uh, I think that these objections have a great deal of force against some simple versions of the theory, but I think the one I've laid before you can handle them. The surrealist incongruities are intended to be unsettling. Unlike jokes, they don't even suggest the patina of intelligibility. They defy explanations, nor do they support even faux intelligible explanations. They're designed to disturb, to, to cause a, a disturbing sense of enigma or mystery. Uh, so in this regard, they're, they're excluded by the theory I've offered because they're anxiety producing. Responses to artworks that involve in interpretive play on the other hand, are typically enjoyable, reflecting upon Citizen Kane and looking for the theme that might unify its parts can be pleasurable, but notice that here the pleasure is connected to the adoption of a genuine problem-solving attitude. It's grounded, out on, it's grounded on working out an interpretation that works, so it's excluded uh, by the provisional definition I've offered you, uh, because it's an example of problem-solving. OK, well, that's enough on the incongruity theory. Now I want to turn to the problem of if we accept that kind of theory is uh, comic uh, uh, amusement and emotion. And as I said, if, if it were the superiority theory that was being defended, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a problem. The emotion would be contempt. But it looks like there might be more problems if we're talking about an incongruity theory. Uh, Before talking about the limitations, let's talk about some of the strengths of categorizing comic amusement as an emotion. Um, First, both are directed. Uh, uh, Emotion paradigmatic emotional states and comic amusement are directed. Fear is directed at things perceived to be threatening. Comic amusement is directed at the humorous, which on the incongruity theory is that which is perceived to be incongruous. The object that fear is directed at it is intentional. It need not exist. It's something that's perceived as threatening. Likewise, the, op, uh, the object of comic amusement is perceived to be incongruous, but need not be. Amusement comes in degrees, as do paradigmatic emotions. And um, it, like paradigmatic emotions, is subject to a degree of self-control. I can suppress my amusement to a certain extent, just as I can control anger and fear (laughs) somewhat. I can also be self-deceived about the source of my enjoyment with respect to a joke, just as I might be self deceived with respect to my hatred of a co-worker who happens to be of another race. Another correspondence uh, is uh, that paradigmatic emotional states uh, appear to have a formal object that is a criterion of appropriateness that governs the mobilization of the state and so does uh, comic amusement. Um, Likewise, Once a paradigmatic emotional state is up and running, it cognitively takes over the situation in which we find ourselves and spotlights features of the context that reinforce the animating affective state. If we're angry with our lover, the anger will enable us to find more things to be angry about. Think about all those arguments you've had with your partner. Similarly, when we're comically amused, we will be inclined towards finding more and more absurdities in the circumstance. One bon mot elicits others. Remembering one aspect of a silly event or character from the past calls for the remembrance of other silly aspects, either from ourselves or from other listeners who are privy to the same events. Sometimes emotions can inaugurate mood states, mental attitudes which calibrate perception and memory, to process everything under their ages, When joyful, for example, everything takes on a happy cast. The grumpy old man next door appears quaint, and so on. Analogously, sustained comic amusement can put us in a comic mood, one where we perceive something in Congress about everything that comes our way. So much for the correspondences, there are also a number of objections or disanalogies that have been advanced. One objection is that the emotions involve the alteration of one's bodily state, but it's not clear that comic amusement does. Uh, That might sound strange. If any state is associated uh, with a change in our body, surely it's comic amusement, which is typically accompanied by explosive laughter. But As we've seen, although laughter is a frequent correlate of comic amusement, it's not invariant. Sometimes a witticism will tease no more from us than a smile or maybe a tug at the lips. Of course, those two are bodily transformations, but there might be cases where we don't even smile, uh, but are comically amused. Uh, I do think that that's true, but I I am going to sort of propose uh, that at least typically... Uh, there is a kind of sensation which goes with comic amusement. It's a phenomenological uh, experience that I will call levity, and I'll try and describe it as a feeling of lightness, uh, a tendency to quicken and then relax, a feeling of, tense, of tensing up uh, or being set aback by being confronted by an ex- absurdity, but then settling back and Relaxing when you realize that there's there's no challenge. So you, you might you might uh, start to mobilize your resources when you hear the punchline of the joke, and then when you r- realize what the interpretation is, you just just relax. Uh, indeed, I'd add this experience of levity to that earlier list of of necessary conditions. Another objection to the notion that comic amusement is a, an emotion is. Uh, that emotions paradigmatically require beliefs in order to ignite but no one believes there exists anyone as dumb as the moron and related to the idea that genuine emotions are connected to beliefs is the view that emotions are action guiding. Uh, they motivate us to behave in certain ways fear prepares us to fight, flee or freeze but comic amusement doesn't appear to motivate us to move in one direction or another When comically amused, we enjoy what appears to be homeless incongruity, but we don't feel any pressure to do anything about it. Now, I want to say that these objections both fail in two ways, in their presumptions about the nature of the emotions in general, and their presuppositions about comic amusement in general. With respect to the emotions, not all emotions require beliefs. Emotional responses to fictional characters need not rest on beliefs. I can feel sorrow for Anna Karenina, although I do not believe she exists, since I know that she and all the events that befell her were invented by Tolstoy. Emotions need not be rooted in beliefs understood as propositions held before the mind as asserted. Genuine emotions may issue from imaginings construed as propositions entertained or held in the mind unasserted. Nor are fictions the only examples of emotions born of imagining. One can certainly engender anxiety in oneself by imagining cutting off your finger in a meat-slicing machine, even though you don't believe that it's happening. Also, you can cause certain uh, changes in your anatomy by um, imagining being in bed with your favorite movie star. Consequently, because genuine emotions can issue from imaginings, The fact that humorous incongruity as in the case of jokes is fictional or made up provides no reason to dismiss the claim that comic amusement is an emotional state. Nor would it help matters to speculate that when paradigmatic emotions are discharging their paradigmatic function they are tethered to beliefs. For certainly the fact that our ancestral forebears were capable of being frightened by contrary to fact stories about what could happen to them, as opposed to what they believed was happening to them, performed an advantageous evolutionary function. It kept many children out of places, like the cave where the bear lived, where they might otherwise have perished without ever having had the opportunity to reproduce. Also, the no-belief argument um, not only falters because emotions don't require beliefs, it also supposes that comic amusement may never rest upon beliefs. But when watching Monty Python and laughing at John Cleese performing one of his funny walks, I don't imagine that he's walking incongruously. I believe that he's walking incongruously. Furthermore, the fact that, our, that comic amusement can be connected to beliefs has ramifications for the claim that comic amusement motivates nothing. Satire, of course, is an important form of comic amusement. The San Francisco Mime Troop and Bread and Puppet Theater and the tradition of Brecht employ satire in order to change our beliefs. They use a trope of comic incongruity, specifically hyperbole, in order to influence our beliefs about the establishment in the hope that it will dispose us to certain forms of political action, if only electoral Indeed, satirizing sexism, racism, and homophobia may alter our beliefs in ways that may change our behaviors. And also, the no motivation argument also depends on a faulty generalization about the emotions. Not all emotional states incline us towards action. Uh, As an academic, I feel great sorrow that the library at Alexandria uh, was destroyed. Uh, but sadness over the loss of the library of Alexandria doesn't motivate me to do anything. After all, there isn't anything I can do about it but grieve. Uh, nor does my sorrow even dispose me towards wishing that the library hadn't been destroyed, since I realized that that would have shifted the course of history in unforeseeable but potentially nasty ways. So my grief neither prompts me to act or even to wish I could act. Not all emotional states are motivating. Consequently, even were it the case that common amusement never motivates us to action, that would fail to show it is not an emotional state. I'm going to skip a very long section criticizing Roger Scruton. It doesn't seem right to... (coughs) criticize him in his own country uh, you see it's a very little <laughs> very long section on that he's someone I like to criticize uh, so let's turn to uh, another kind of objection well a more recent kind of objection is that that uh, comic amusement uh, as understood by the incongruity theory of humor uh, isn't an emotional state because it would make it too cognitive. Uh, On the incongruity theory the comically amused subject marshals categories, attempts to subsume the object of amusement under those categories and then enjoys the way that the object slips out from under the categories. Yet on Neo-Jamesian views of the sort that are gaining traction nowadays, uh, think, for example, the work of Jesse Prince, Uh, there seems to be too much thinking going on. Uh, For Neo-Jamesians, the emotional state is much more like a perception. It's a non-cognitive, effective appraisal that then elicits a physiological change. Where cognition enters the picture, if it enters at all, is after the original appraising response when it functions to monitor or modify the earlier and ongoing states of our response. For comic amusement and emotional state, uh, on this view, uh, it would not be as intellectual as the incongruity theories assumes. Consequently, comic amusement, if it's analyzed by incongruity theorists, is not an emotional state, at least for the Jamesian. Um, now, even though I accept the scientific evidence that something <laughs> like The view that the Neo-Jamesians advance describes the most frequent pattern of emotional response. I don't see why the Neo-Jamesians are as convinced as they are that emotional states never take the trajectory hypothesized by earlier cognitive theorists of the emotions. On those accounts, some cognitive evaluative interlude precedes the physiological feeling stage. And aren't some emotions like that I mean, think of academic envy. It might take might take a, a while and a lot of deliberation to figure out that your, your, your chairman is favoring uh, 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 one of you over the other. Furthermore, it seems to me that the various Neo-Jamesian attempts to accommodate these apparently cognitively driven emotional states are suspiciously ad hoc. According to Jennifer Robinson, who's probably in, in, in the philosophy of art, the the leading Neo-Jamesian, where deliberation uh, precedes effective appraisals, there is some kind of intervening stage during which our emotional memory system matches our deliberations with some previous situational types in order to elicit bodily appraisals. Uh, And that's where the elicitation of the bodily appraisal is where the emotion proper starts. But to me there seems an extra step here why can't deliberation alone arrive at appraisals sufficient to provoke physiological change why do we have to be rerouted through emotional memory types, I mean if the Neo-Jamesian admits that cognition can modify emotional states on the back end, why can't it interact, why can't cognitive states interact directly with emotions on the, on the front end Uh, It strikes me that only a commitment to thoroughgoing non-cognitivism makes the move even tempting, which in this this context amounts to presupposing what needs to be solved. So, at least for the moment, it seems fair to assume that some emotional states are structured the way that earlier cognitive theorists suggested, and then at least some cases of cognitive amusement could be understood on that model. But then the question is, what about the remaining cases? And um, Here I think that the incongruity theory need not be thought of as, as categorically inhospitable to Neo Jamesianism as I've suggested. Consider the two stage structure of these <coughs> jokes. Moish calls his friend Aaron from the highway on a cell phone. Aaron tells Moish to be careful because the radio says there's a nut on the highway driving in the wrong direction. Moi says, yeah, there are hundreds of them. <laughs> Stage one of the joke is completed when the punchline arrives. Punchlines are by nature puzzling. They call for interpretation. Stage two occurs when the listener reaches the interpretation, but the interpretation is generally as incongruous or as absurd as the punchline. In the preceding joke, the punchline pushes us to ask how could there be hundreds of people on the highway driving in the wrong direction? Then we realize that Moise is the nut who's driving in the wrong direction. Uh, But when you think about it, this is uh, uh, an an absurdity on its own since who could be so dimwitted that they fail to see they're driving the wrong way on a crowded highway? such a person uh, would be as, nonsensible as nonsensical as the moron uh, in fact Moïse is a moron but this scenario fits very neatly with the neo-Jamesian characterization of the emotions at stage one there's an effective pre- appraisal following Robinson let us say it amounts to something like the apprehension this is strange, this is unexpected or maybe even this is incongruous that is, the effective appraisal stage involves pattern recognition, which of course will be sensitive to deviations from the pattern. This may lead to a physiological response, we call being taken aback, which is then followed by cognitive monitoring that establishes that this is harmless nonsense. Since it's harmless, the emotion that evolves is in fear. Since it's nonsense, we don't hunker down to solve the problem. (coughs) Instead, we enjoy it, and that's signaled by the laughter or the feeling of levity. So, although the incongruity theory appears to depend on a kind of cognitive theory that Neo-Jamesians eschew, it need not. In fact, if Neo-Jamesianism is true, we can also uh, uh, segue it to the uh, incongruity theory of humor. The very last uh, objection to the conjecture that I want to canvas today observes that emotions involve vital human interests. Fear protects us from harm, anger from injustice, jealousy warns us that we may be losing an important source of affection, sorrow alerts us to loss. But if comic amusement is an emotion, to what vital human interest is it connected? Again, the superiority theory has an answer. The laughter of sudden glory reinforces our sense of social standing. But if the incongruity theory of comic amusement is correct, what vital human interest does taking pleasure in incongruity serve? One provocative suggestion has been offered by the polymath Jonathan Miller, the neurologist, opera director, and former member of Beyond the Fringe consonant with the incongruity theory of comic amusement, Miller cites that scene uh, from The Gold Rush in which Chaplin eats his boot. Miller remarks that it constitutes, quote, a jarring discrepancy in which an object is suddenly forcefully reclassified by being taken out of the category of the radically inedible and placed into the category of the finally, the wonderfully edible. the scene rejuvenates our sense of what these everyday categories are. By playing with our categories and concepts in this way, Miller argues we have, quote, prevented ourselves from becoming slaves to the categories we live by. In this regard, he says, Yuma is the rehearsal and reestablishment of concepts. Expanding warmly on this theme, Miller notes, In all procedures of life there are rules of thumb which enable us to go on automatic pilot. We depend on the existence of these categories in order to go about our everyday business. Jokes allow us to stand back from these rules and inspect them. As a result of this, Miller contends that being comically amused enables us to rehearse and revise the categories we live by, thereby, according to Miller, restoring us to what he calls more versatile versions of ourselves. Thus is comic amusement connected to the serious business of, uh, of serving our higher interests. Uh, Miller's proposal is very congenial to the incongruity theory. And although I concur with him that the service comic amusement performs concerns cognition to play with concepts, I'm not convinced that humor has much to do with the production of new and better concepts, as Miller seems to think. I suppose you could say that comic amusement frees us from everyday norms and concepts, but it doesn't give way to higher sense. It leads to nonsense. Apart from certain philosophical counterexamples, it's difficult to come up with many examples of comic amusement leading to genuine concept revision. But Miller isn't talking about philosophical counterexamples, he's talking about everyday comic amusement. Perhaps a more promising conjecture can be found in The Society of the Mind by Marvin Minsky, the co-founder of the Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. Like Miller, Minsky emphasizes the connection between comic amusement and cognition. And like Miller, Minsky maintains that the primary function of humor is to disrupt the heuristics we deploy in everyday life. Uh, for, For Minsky, we're possessed of a plethora of rules of thumb that we use in order to wend our way through daily events. Of course, these heuristics are imperfect reasoning routines, They work quickly, but not always accurately. Indeed, these heuristics can go wrong often in more ways than one. According to Minsky, the function of comic amusement is to apprise us of the many ways that normal thinking can go wrong. The function of humor, in other words, is to signal the existence of what he calls cognitive bugs. Uh, so there's an old Chinese story. A uh, man is walking along the road in front of his horse, and a Confucian sage comes up to him and says, why, why are you walking in front of the horse? Why don't you ride the horse? Man says, Well, you know, six legs are faster than four. <laughs> a heuristic that usually works, but is not always reliable. <laughs> Okay, analogizing his theory to Freud, Minsky claims that via humor we're able to build up what amounts to an unconscious cognitive sensor that polices everyday thinking and guards us against the wealth of errors our heuristics can induce. There are so many jokes because our heuristics can lead us in so many different ways. Joking might be thought of as a course in informal logic. Those of you who want to include up your enrollments might, might think of designing courses like that I think Minsky's approach to comic amusement is superior to Miller's since Minsky's not under the illusion that comic amusement is a source of, of, of better thoughts it is, its function is to call our attention to fluid thinking yet his analogy to Freud <clears throat> notion of an unconscious censor doesn't succeed for Freud jokes elude the censor In contrast, Minsky maintains that jokes construct the censor, piece by piece heuristic misfiring by heuristic misfiring. Nor is this this disanalogy insignificant. The source of pleasure in jokes for Freud is lifting the censorship. That is, Freud explains the pleasure in jokes in terms of its service to the unconscious id. But Minsky has no cognitive id, probably for the reason that a Cognitive id would be a contradiction in terms. However, that leaves Minsky with no no, no room and no role for pleasure in his account. Actually, I think the problem is worse than this. The fact that we take pleasure in comic nonsense would seem to predict the opposite of the construction of a cognitive sensor. Since we enjoy cognitive incongruities, wouldn't that encourage us to perpetuate them? The more the merrier, so to speak. We don't typically suppress what gives us pleasure. Since comic incongruities make us happy, wouldn't that dispose us to commit more rather than fewer absurdities? Perhaps this is borne out by the readily observed phenomena that one joke leads to another. In this regard, against Minsky, we would predict that comic amusement is the natural enemy of cognition rather than its benefactor. In fact, Plato certainly worried about exactly this with respect to the education of the guardians. He, he, uh, he recommended uh, uh, where are we? Yeah, that's Plato. He, he recommended that they should not be encouraged to laugh because those habituated to laughter are inclined to say or do anything in order to indulge it, no matter how alien to reason. If humor is linked to cognitive bugs, as Minsky and the incongruity theorists agree, then what service does comic amusement perform for cognition? Wouldn't the pleasure it engenders reinforce our production of errors rather than diminish them? In short, Minsky's notion of a cognitive unconscious sensor leaves unexplained the role of cognitive enjoyment in the service of the interests of cognition. Now, although it's true that one typically does not spend a great deal of time dwelling on a joke or other forms of cognitive incongruity, it's quite frequent after hearing a joke to run the punchline uh, through one's mind uh, and its interpretation a few times. Often, often you repeat the punchline a couple of times, and, and some of us just run out to find somebody else to tell the joke to immediately, so we like to re- review the joke a- afterwards. Um, like the moment when the interpretation of the punchline first dawns on us, we replay uh, the moment of the joke or the bone meal, and these replays are suffused with pleasure, The function of pleasure here, it seems to me, is to encourage us to focus intently on the incongruity. Translating this into Minsky's language, the pleasure component of comic amusement rivets our attention on the cognitive bugs in play and induces us to scrutinize them closely in order to know them better so as to avoid them and the activation of the panoply of heuristics, rules of thumbs, norms, and concepts that we employ in everyday life. Evolution rarely attaches pleasure to something unless it has cause to. Pleasure is connected to comic incongruity to alert us to the pitfalls to which our mental equipment is irresistibly prone as is shown by how easily we say that we fall for a joke. Thus, comic amusement conceived of in terms of the enjoyment of incongruity can be seen to be, like the other emotions, serving vital human interests, namely our interest in cognitive well-functioning. Moreover, if cognitive amusement is existentially serviceable for the way in which it draws our attention to local flaws... In our ways of thinking, it also at least has the potential global significance of disclosing to the reflective student of humor the frailty of human thinking. In comic amusement, we learn how readily we err. As against the superiority theorists, comic amusement does not or should not serve as a source for human arrogance, but instead as an occasion for humility, for an appreciation of human weakness. Thank you.